You're listening to For Good, Central Indiana Community Foundation's podcast highlighting stories about passion, purpose, and progress in Central Indiana. At CICF, we believe in creating a community where everyone can reach their full potential, no matter their place, race, or identity. This is our community, and these are your stories. Hello, and welcome to For Good. I'm Tamara Winfrey Harris, the Vice President for Community Leadership and Effective Philanthropy at Central Indiana Community Foundation. Today, we're recording from Tease Me Cafe. It's a tea shop that's been a staple in the Heron Morton and Fall Creek Place neighborhoods for 13 years and is now owned by former WNBA star Tamika Catchings. Yay, everybody loves Tamika. Absolutely. And in honor of Mental Health Month, I'm joined today by four individuals who are passionate mental health advocates uh, for our conversation today. And first, um, I'd like to have everyone introduce themselves. Suzanne, why don't we start with you? Hi, I'm Suzanne Clifford, and I'm Senior Advisor for Given Hour and also CEO of Inspiring Transformations, working with communities like Westfield and Fishers. I'm Steve Arusa. I'm Fire Chief for the City of Fishers Department of Fire and Emergency Services. I'm Chris Paulson. I am CEO at Indiana Youth Group. Hi, my name is Bree Suggs, and I'm the Program Manager for Given Hour Indiana. So, Suzanne, both you and Bree mentioned Given Hour. Can you tell us a little bit about what that is? Absolutely. Uh, Given Hour is an international organization that was founded first to provide free mental health care to veterans and military families, but because of the wonderful work of the Women's Fund and the Marion County Health Department, we're the first place in the country where we're piloting this and expanding it for uh, underserved girls and women in the community. So we're very excited about that. And I'll let Bree tell you a little bit about our wonderful program. So given our Indiana, we'll be working with, um, or we have been working with uh, two IPS schools, um, School 96 and School 83, Meredith Nichols and Floral Torrance. And we have a 10 week program that's centered around the five signs of emotional suffering and the five healthy habits. Um, and we intertwine that with a social emotional learning curriculum in which the girls um, are supported with activities where they can do art and different things where we engage in conversation that um, highlights the topics of emotions, healthy relationships, body image, um, general health. So, you know, Bree and Suzanne, you both work for specifically a mental health organization, but Chris and Steve, you both have very different perspectives and experiences with mental health and wellness. And I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about the role mental health and, and wellness has played in your work. Um, Chris, we'll start with you. Certainly. Um Indiana Youth Group provides a safer space for LGBTQ youth ages 12 to 20 to um, come and hang out, um, be their authentic selves, maybe escape from some of the uh, traumas that they um, face in everyday life, in at home, in school, um, in places of worship. So we just try to give them a safer space that they can be themselves and um, grow into who they really are. And Steve, what about you? I mean, Fire Chief 
is uh, maybe not people's first thought when they think about mental health advocates. Um, but why is understanding mental health so important to your work? Fire and emergency services um, focuses on the 911 call. And things can sneak up on you in the community. One of them is mental health. We found that we were having several hundred mental health runs in a year, and then in another additional several hundred immediate detentions um, at Community North. So you begin to see that there's more mental health issues in our community than there are fires. So now how do we, as a public safety organization, create a paradigm shift and go from fires and 911 and EMS calls to addressing the mental health crisis in our community? And it's, it, it takes some cultural courage because my guys didn't sign up to do mental health runs. It's not sexy. They signed up to ride a red fire truck and rescue people. But um, I'm pretty proud of them, and we've embraced and we're making a difference. That's a powerful statement that there are more mental health calls than fires. That's really powerful. So let's talk about some of that data. Um, Suzanne, can you give us some context about where we are um, nationally, national statistics around mental health, but most especially locally and, and regionally? Absolutely. Unfortunately, suicide is the second leading cause of death for people across the country for uh, ages 10 to 34. So there is no disease that kills people ages 10 to 34 more than suicide. In fact, in Indiana, suicide's the third leading cause of death of kids 10 to 14, and the second leading cause of death to Hoosiers uh, 15 to 34. So a lot of critical needs out there. And it's really important that we intervene early because half of all serious mental illness begins by age 14 and 75% uh, begins by age 24. So we have to break the stigma and help people get treatment earlier. The treatment success rate is so much better the earlier we intervene. And that's why I'm passionate about all these wonderful, more preventative, proactive programs that we're talking about today. I wonder how those statistics change when we're talking about people of color. African Americans um, and minority populations access services half um, the amount of their uh, Caucasian counterparts, as well as um, are twice as likely to be misdiagnosed or underdiagnosed. Chris, how does that context change when we talk about the LGBTQ community? LGB youth seriously contemplate suicide at almost three times the rate of heterosexual youth, and LGB youth are almost five times as likely to have attempted suicide compared to their heterosexual peers. So it's definitely something that we keep a very close eye on, um, how our youth are feeling and what we can do to um, help them through those uh, feelings. And what are the barriers to treatment? I know when we talk about people of color, um, not only is there stigma, but um, there are fewer um, professionals, culturally competent professionals, um, people that would understand their experiences. I would imagine we'd find the same uh, with the LGBTQ community. There are, um, there luckily are more and more therapists that um, know how to competently deal with LGBTQ youth and adults, um, but 
it is a limited um, pool of therapists. So um, it is difficult getting um, into a therapist, um, you know, in a timely manner. Yeah. And I think Chris and Bree are both doing some cultural competency training with uh, people uh, like licensed therapists and psychiatrists and others so that we can expand that. We really want people, very diverse people from all over to think about the mental health profession. We have a massive shortage and we need different perspectives in order to meet people where they are and connect with them and understand them. To piggyback off what you were saying, um, something that I feel like is very valuable that is that we're seeing increasing in Indiana is the use of peer supports. So whether it be, you know, um, peer supports for mental health, for addiction, or even specifically for youth, we're seeing individuals with lived experience who've navigated the systems, who've had to navigate and create their wellness plan and create a, a, a regimen for how they maintain their um, challenges, and they're able to give back and help other people navigate the same way. So I'm grateful that a lot of clinicians and um, community mental health centers are now using peers to walk alongside individuals and it increases the outcomes and if they're not able to necessarily um, get in contact with their clinician then they can have access to a peer who can help them in addition so I'm grateful for that. That's so important so important to have someone else who understands a little bit about what you're going through Um, and also important that first responders are knowledgeable and I wonder Steve what are some of the signs um, that first responders look for when they're determining, you know, is this a mental health call? Is this, do we need to take this another step and get this person mental health? Yeah, what's great is um, we've created the program that we have um, in our EMS division, Emergency Medical Services Division, asked the question, how do we prepare the 24-year-old firefighter paramedic to go on a mental health run? Um, there was no template out there, so we kind of created our own with the help of Suzanne, and it includes a CIT training, 40-hour CIT training. Um, everybody's going through the CIT youth training, um, social-emotional learning training, all these types of training, and now we have a menu and a checklist, but we're still not done because it's so new. Um, and then there's the point now, okay, we need to audit and review these runs with a clinician to identify gaps in service and prepare people even more effectively to serve those individuals. And on top of that, we need to have our people do clinical hours like they do for paramedicine and labor and delivery or on the cardiac floor. They need to do that in a mental health facility. So we're building that out right now and including mandatory continuing education skills maintenance for those individuals. What's really interesting, last quarter of last year is we actually um, left the 911 call and said, how do we prevent some of this? How do we serve these individuals? Because if they become super users, we're not really making up any ground. So we implemented an EMS duty officer position, which is um, a 24 uh, hour, seven day a week service where this EMS duty officer is mental health trained, it's also a paramedic, goes on every mental health run. It's important because the police officers need someone to rule out a medical issue and whether it's mental health or not. That EMS duty officer can do that, but what's the most important part is that EMS duty officer follows up within 72 hours with that patient, builds a trusting relationship, becomes a patient navigator, and now can make a difference in that patient's life because people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And just seeing them on a 911 call and dropping them off at the ER is not meeting them at their point of need. So we hope that people will get assistance before it becomes an emergency 
So I'm, I'm wondering what are the steps, what are the signs that you recommend people look for, you know, to determine whether their friends or family, people they care about need mental assistance? I think it's awesome that the campaign to change direction is so simple. The five signs and five healthy habits. Number one, a change in personality, not feeling like yourself. If you notice a change in someone um, or they're just, even if you can't identify it specifically, if you know that something's off, that's a sign. Number two, if someone have, is having mood swings or mood changes, feeling agitated, overly aggressive or overly angry. Um, if someone is, is isolating themselves or withdrawing from others or just kind of um, being off. Off, not wanting to be around others um, that's a sign um, if you see a decline in personal care um, someone's not bathing someone's not uh, taking care of themselves as they usually would showering um, and fifth an overwhelming feeling of hopelessness um, if someone is um, feeling sad or feeling like things aren't ever gonna get better then that's the fifth sign Chris I wonder if there is one anecdote or experience you've had that really illustrates how important mental health care is for the community you serve? Definitely. Um, we come across a lot of youth who have been rejected by their families, and that's obviously a huge um, trigger to mental health issues. Um, we had one youth who was thrown out of his home, and he uh, went back to get his ID because his parents didn't let him have his ID. Um, they had him arrested for trespassing. Um, he was 18 and three days at the point. So now he has a felony and he was in a small town, Indiana. So he came to Indianapolis thinking there's gonna be services here. And he got here and discovered there aren't that many services unless you actually know where to go. And um, yeah, he came to us um, pretty hopeless um, that he wasn't going to ever become anything because he couldn't get housed, he couldn't get a job, um, he couldn't get into education, um, and he just felt that there was no path forward at all. And just working with those youth to find um, just a small break, you know, we helped get him an ID. That was a huge thing because now he can enroll in school, um, things like that. Just walking with the youth through all those barriers that they face. Um, really can um, help, but those triggers the family um, and society in general can really trigger um, mental health issues um, in youth just at the snap of a finger. I think you bring up such an important point. You know, today there is so much hate and negative bombardment of the brain right now with the 24-7 news cycle, with social media, people sometimes electronically saying some things that they wouldn't say face-to-face, -face, and then people not accepting people for who they are. Um, people don't realize the impact that you make on that person's life. And so it's very important that we really think about how we're treating each other and how we're caring about each other and what we can do to be a good person. Who, who are you in this world and how are you impacting the people around you? Suzanne, to your point, um, each episode of LGBT victimization raises the chance of self-harm by 2.5% in youth. So every time they hear something negative, it's 2.5 times more likely that they are going to self-harm, which um, if you hear 10 things in a day, that's huge. I mean, they're hearing it from every direction. So yes, being kind to each other is very, very important. 
And thinking of you, you, to your point, how many negative things so many people, so many youth are hearing today, LGBTQ youth, Muslim youth, African-American youth, you know, traumatic videos of police shootings, you're bombarded with that through social media and television, and that's constant trauma. I, I wonder, because, you know, we all know what good personal health care looks like, even if we don't do it, you know, you eat an <laughs> apple a day, you eat, your, you know, eat your lettuce, you get up and move for 30 minutes a day. You know, we kind of have a blueprint, even though a lot of us don't do it, on what it looks like to treat your body well. But I wonder, are there some things, Suzanne, that we should be doing to treat our minds well? I mean, because it occurs to me we ought to be thinking about mental health care in the same way we think about physical health care. So what do we do to keep ourselves mentally healthy if we can? Yeah, so there are five healthy habits, and I think those are very important. They're very simple, and I know you have those on the Women's Fund uh, website as well. One of them is take care of yourself, you know. Most Americans do not get enough sleep. Most people around the world are not getting enough sleep. So get good sleep, get exercise, eat right, and think about the types of foods that you're putting into your body. That's number one, take care. Also, check in with others and make sure that you are checking in with your friends. Um, if you need a professional, check in with a professional. That's what they're there for. Um, also engaging friends and family, having relationships. Social isolation is one of the biggest problems today. It's also a problem in older adults. So that's another place where we need to do some specific outreach. Um, also, um, just learning how to relax and take care of yourself. And that may look different for different people. Some people might like to dance or sing. Some people might like to garden. Some people might like to go for a walk. So, Bree, so what if we did all those? Th what if we did all those things? What if we did that? What if we started being kind to one another and treating each other equally? What if our first responders were all trained and educated? What would it look like? What would be different what I see every day uh, even with the girls they want to be in an environment where they feel accepted um, where they feel loved where they know someone cares and that they're important to someone and to see them thrive and to see and to engage with them and see how well they do when they are in that environment and how they model that too. The kinder we are to them, the kinder they are to each other. So it's super helpful to see how sweet they're, how excited they are to see us and how much they give back the love and care to each other when, when we do that. So I look forward to that community and I hope to to bring that in that I think we will have a lot of decrease in suicides and I think we will have a lot of decrease in, in self-harm and a lot of conflict in general and even I think about violence as well like there could be a decrease in that and when we treat people well. Yeah I, I couldn't agree more Bree. I think creating that environment where the kids feel that there are caring adults that really want to help them and teach them and make sure that they're successful. And then we, we ask them, what, what are your dreams and how can we help you 
in your journey to achieve your dreams, it's really important. You know, um, CICF is also sponsoring um, through the Hamilton County Community Foundation, the Wellbeing Coalition of Westfield. And one of the wonderful things that they're going to be doing that I think we need to spread across the state is um, thinking about reducing social isolation and increasing a web of support. And there's a gentleman, Derek Peterson, who is a national expert. In addition, the Hamilton County Community Foundation, along with the schools in the city in Westfield, is sponsoring a well-being coalition of Westfield. And they're really looking at the holistic well-being. And their goal is to have all people in the community thrive. Steve, what would change if we took more care if we if we took mental wellness seriously i think we have the opportunity to create a generation that embraces mental health before a crisis occurs um, and you know having one person i'm on the board for youth mentoring initiative have one other relationship with an adult that's outside your teachers your parents and your peer group because let's face it if i just relied on my parents for advice they're my parents and if I relied on my 15-year-old peer group, I wouldn't be here right now. But there was a youth pastor that came into my life and helped me and mentored me and helped me make good choices and identify my values, how to resolve conflict. If we can interrupt that cycle of adversity for some of these kids, the next generation, it looks very promising. Chris, what would change? I think um, it would be a societal change, um, accepting people for who they are and not wanting everyone to be the same. Um, knowing that a community that has many differences is stronger than everyone being the same and um, accepting people for who they actually are. And one last question, what would each of you say to someone listening right now who is suffering from emotional distress, Bree? The number one thing that I would say is um, in the silence, um, there's someone who cares. There's someone who's going to listen to you and um, let them walk alongside you. Let them support you. I know it may feel like no one cares, no one listens, or that it's better for you to um, stay alone and handle this alone, but you're not the only one. And someone has experienced what you've experienced, and they care, and they want to walk alongside you and make that first call to reach out for help. Steve? I, mean, I think that all of us have gifts, um, all of us, and our job is to be a good steward of those gifts because they're not ours. So um, if you're going through crisis, get help. Don't be afraid to talk about it. Don't be afraid to leave a legacy that it's okay not to be okay and that everyone should be included and that love is a top priority. Chris? It does get better. Um, I know that's hard to see when you're in the middle of it, but... Um, things work out and things get easier and it will get better. And Suzanne? Definitely talk to somebody. Start with friends, family, people around you and be open and, and let them know that you need help. We're also going to provide some resources and crisis numbers. You can always call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline and we really want you to make sure that you do connect with someone because we care. There's so much more we could talk about, but our time together is up. But I want to note that if anyone listening is in need of support, 
Text 741-741 for free crisis counseling. That's 741-741 for free crisis counseling. Or visit havehope.com, havehope.com. We'll have links to this and more information on our podcast page at CICF.org as well. And thank you to our guests for this important conversation. And we'll be back next month with another episode of For Good. For more information about the topics discussed today, visit CICF.org. For Good is brought to you by Central Indiana Community Foundation in partnership with WFYI Public Media. We hope you'll subscribe to For Good on your favorite podcast app. And while you're there, don't forget to leave us a review.